This is Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner, Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and Division Director of Neurology at Regional One Health in Memphis, Tennessee. Joining us today from the Von Hippel-Lindau Disease Program at Northwestern Medicine, we have three distinguished guests. Dr. Brittany Simonak, Genetic Counselor and Instructor of Urology. Dr. Remus Lucas, Associate Professor of Neurology in the Division of Neuro-Oncology. Dr. Niraj Shinoy, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology and Pathology. Welcome, Dr. Simonak, Lucas, and Shinoy. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you, Dr. Wilner. Yes, well, thanks for joining us. To get started, Dr. Shinoy, let's start with you. Tell us about von Hippel-Lindau disease, or VHL. All right, so the von Hippel-Lindau disease, it's a genetic disorder um, due to defects in the VHL gene, and um, it is manifested by characteristic tumors in um, multiple organs. And so specifically, these tumors are hemangioblastomas uh, in the central nervous system, uh, particularly in the cerebellum and spinal cord, uh, retinal hemangioblastomas, glia cell renal cancers in the kidneys, often multiple and bilateral, um, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, pheochromocytomas, and uh, uh, much less commonly endolymphatic sac tumors. Um, and, and often these patients can also manifest uh, with cysts um, in multiple organs, in the kidneys, pancreas, and in the liver. Um, they typically, patients typically present in the third or fourth decade of life, and that is because they've inherited usually one defective allele from one of their parents, and pathology usually develops when the wild-type allele um, is also affected by a mutation or a deletion or epigenetic silencing. And, and so when, the, when both of these alleles are compromised, that's when you know, pathology develops in terms of you know, tumor formation. Well, thank you, Dr. Shinoy. You know, I'm a practicing neurologist, and, and frankly, I, I can't remember whether I've ever seen a patient uh, with this disorder. Is it rare? It is rare. Um, the incidence is estimated to be one in, um, is it 35,000, around 35,000 live births? And, and so it is a reasonably rare disease. But um, we're seeing these patients a little more commonly right now, and that is largely due to the approval of a drug that we've had um, uh, that happened last year, uh, which has been a really exciting uh, you know, uh, development for these patients. All right, well, we're going to get get to that, the treatment in a little while. But mm -hmm. Dr. Simonak, Dr. Shinoy mentioned that VHL is a genetic condition. Uh, I know it was described more than 100 years ago, but when did they figure out the, the genetic part? Um, oh, you're stumping me with the question. So um, I'm not sure if Dr. Shinoy or <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Lucas would know. Uh, but off the top of my head, I'm not sure what year exactly the gene was discovered. But um, the idea is that this gene is a tumor suppressor. So just like Dr. Shinoy described, 
when we have one allele that's compromised, that's putting a, a patient one step closer to actually developing some type of tumor or cancer. And so when the second allele um, has some type of mutation, then we actually see disease presenting. Um, but what's important to note about VHL is that, like D Dr. Chinoy mentioned, this is typically inherited from a parent, so dominant, but about 20 to 25% of the time, we can see that this is actually a brand new genetic change in one of our patients that was not inherited from a, a parent. So this can actually make sometimes identifying patients more complicated because we don't see that there's this um, very strong pattern of VHL type of cancers that we or tumors that we would typically anticipate. Well, if I suspected uh, this in a patient, would it be because they have one tumor or would they have a lot of them all at the same time? And the second part of my question is, how do I make the diagnosis? Is it a, is it a blood test or is it a clinical diagnosis or do I need some tissue? Yeah. So typically, because this is going to be a mutation present in every cell of this patient's body, we typically see people presenting with more than just one tumor or cancer. And like Dr. Shinoy mentioned, typically with the kidney cancer, it tends to be bilateral. We tend to see multi-focus um, cancers presenting. Um, back before we actually had good genetic testing, we had clinical criteria that we used, but now really kind of the gold standard is to be able to do um, blood testing to actually get germline results for a patient. Or if we think that this is a de novo mutation or a new mutation, we might actually need to do a skin punch biopsy to identify that this could be mosaic for a patient. Now, I have a feeling if I did a if I did a blood sample and sent it to my lab, I would just sit there on the counter and probably wouldn't get processed. Do they have to send it somewhere? Yeah. So I would say that the vast majority of hospitals do not have in-house germline testing. So usually it's going to be independent clinical genetic testing laboratories that will be performing this type of testing. Dr. Lucas, do you, do you do that kind of testing at, at your hospital or do patients have to get tested and, and then come to the Northwestern program? How does that work? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's interesting because the, the workflow for patients with VHL or suspected VHL can come from a number of different directions. And you as a neurologist actually may be one of the first people to see these patients because one of the most classic manifestations is somebody coming into your ER or into your clinic with neurologic symptoms associated with increased intracranial pressure. Imaging is performed. An abnormality is noted in the posterior fossa um, that raises, for at least for myself, suspicion for uh, hemangioblastoma. And then they undergo uh, surgical intervention to relieve that pressure, relieve that lesion, which can usually be completely uh, cut out. Um, if the pathology comes back as hemangioblastoma, I think it's important to be aware that it could be VHL related. And, you know, about 50 or so percent of hemangioblastomas in the nervous system are going to be sporadic, so not related to VHL, but that means half of them will be. And if there's, you know, factors that start to make you a little bit worried, so the patient's younger, uh, maybe something else was seen on the imaging study, it, I think, warrants further evaluation for VHL. Um, at our institution, We'll typically do the histopathology, so looking under the microscope of the tumor itself. We'll also do the next generation sequencing of the tumor, which universally in a hemangioblastoma will show VHL mutation. Now, that doesn't mean that the person has VHL. It just means that that uh, gene is mutated within the hemangioblastoma. We'll also do DNA methylation profiling, so looking at some of those epigenetic features that Dr. Shinoy uh, had uh, alluded to. And then I'll pass the baton to Dr. Samaniak, and she will then 
coordinate the um, genetic testing for that patient to confirm that germ the, the germline presence of VHL mutation. And I think being able to package the whole thing together is really important. And one of the reasons why is people can sort of slip through the cracks. So they see you as the neurologist, you say, oh, you have this tumor, the neurosurgeon cured you of it, you're done. You know, let's call it a day, nothing to worry about. Um, and the last thing we want is for that same young individual then to get renal cancer that subsequently metastasizes and nobody paid attention to it, or they get retinal angiomas that lead to blindness. And so, um, you know, I think we work really hard to make sure that none of that falls through the cracks. And it's the cancer genetics counseling team that really serves as the linchpin to, to allow people to get to the right subspecialty physicians with experience in VHL within our program. Dr. Simonak, we just learned that this disease tends to present in the 20s and 30s, which is, uh, well, for a lot of people, is childbearing uh, years. So probably it's important for those people to know whether they are uh, carrying this uh, gene or not. Um, how does that work at, at your program there in terms of genetic counseling and testing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Dr. Lucas mentioned, we can sometimes see patients at different like points in their care. So sometimes it's the situation that they've already had genetic testing. This is something that's been known about in the family for a long time. So we talk through options when it comes to family planning, um, because most patients and, and even some providers don't know that we actually have the ability to do testing on embryos as part of the IVF process now. Not everybody can necessarily afford to go through something like that, but we talk through options when it comes to um, how can we actually do testing for families to figure out what um, they would want to do in terms of possibly passing this on to any future children. Um, but it's if it's the situation that somebody has not had genetic testing yet, then we're going through that whole process of figuring out for them and then being able to have a better idea of what risk could be for other relatives. Um, and so it's really important for us to be able to identify these patients because then not only are we getting them in for screening when we need to, we're, we already know that their kids are going to be at risk and we're already going to be able to start screening for them when it's appropriate versus potentially having somebody come in, like Dr. Lucas mentioned, presenting with symptoms already because we didn't actually know that they had VHL. Would one of you like to give an example of a recent patient and kind of how it goes through the, your program? I think, um, you know, I already mentioned the scenario where somebody comes in with um, the uh, neurologic symptoms, but another one um, that uh, was sort of uh, kind of alluded to a moment ago is the scenario where somebody has a known diagnosis of VHL, or maybe their family member does, their brother has a uh, known VHL, they undergo the genetic testing, and then it turns out they also have that mutation present. In that type of scenario, what would typically happen is they'd see Brittany in the clinic. She would, uh, you know, confirm that uh, the presence of that mutation. We'd make sure we have kind of the full documentation of what the story of this individual is, have a good understanding of their family tree with regards to the presence or absence of uh, tumors of, of various sorts, and then make sure that they have the appropriate screening done. And classically for us, that appropriate screening is going to include central nervous system imaging, meaning taking a look with a MRI scan of the brain and the spine, a neurological exam, which is where I would come into play. And ideally, we find nothing. Um, and if that's the case, then that's great. And if we do find something, most of the time in VHL, one of the things I want to stress to patients and families is that we can usually be pretty conservative with regards to our therapeutic management, meaning we can just keep an eye on things often and then just, you know, check and double check and triple check over time to ensure that the abnormalities that are present are not growing, that they're not causing any symptoms. And, you know, hopefully that that continues indefinitely. 
Um, and then if something does happen, then we'll address it. And our classic tools have been surgery, but now we have some other things that uh, we, we can also use. In addition to that, they would meet with Dr. Shinoy, for example, and he would keep an eye on the, the renal manifestations, et cetera, and address those if needed. We'd have them evaluated by ophthalmology and in, in ophthalmologists with specific experience in VHL, um, ENT with audiometry um, to look for those endolymphatic sac tumors that can cause decrease in hearing, um, you know, scanning kind of top to bottom to, to make sure that there is no... Uh, What's nice for us is that the VHL Alliance has a, a delineated um, recommendation of um, screening procedures. So we kind of keep keep people on track and then address things as, uh, they, as symptoms develop. Okay, so it sounds like if a patient does have the gene but is otherwise uh, asymptomatic, that at a minimum, they're going to have a fairly extensive uh, systemic screening on an annual basis? In overall, yes. And certain types of scans, it's every two years, et cetera. And so that makes it complex um, with regards to how to keep the parts of the puzzle together. And that's why I think it's helpful to have an organized program because for me, my job becomes so much easier when I have confidence that everything else is under good control or that somebody is keeping a watch on these other aspects, even if they are you know, having problems that arise. Um, and so then I can make my recommendations regarding the central nervous system disease, whether that's recommending somebody be seen by neurosurgery or whether recommending they initiate a systemic therapy with a much greater degree of confidence. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Dr. Shinoy, we know that VHL is currently incurable. Are there any new treatment options uh, that make all of this screening uh, really worthwhile? Yeah, so um, we were just you know, alluding to this new medication called Belzutifan, um, which was approved by the FDA last year, and specifically for cancers associated with the VHL disease. And, and the approvals for three, uh, approval was for three specific cancers. Um, the clear cell renal cancer, which is what the study was uh, uh, powered to detect. It was a phase two um, open-label single-arm study, um, which was published, but it was a registrational study, uh, which was published in the NEJM um, last year, which uh, showed impressive response rates in uh, different cancers associated with PHL. Um, response rates of uh, 49% in clear cell renal cancer, 30% in hemangioblastomas and uh, upwards of 75% for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. And so the data were strong enough to gain approval for all of these three malignancies associated with uh, VHL, and which is, which is great because um, you, know, you don't want to be in a position where you know, patients have um, a particular, say for example, VHL patients who manifested without clear cell RCCs. If the approval was only specifically for RCC, those patients would not have benefited. And the FDA rightly deemed that uh, the response rates were impressive enough across the cancers and uh, gave the approvals for these three malignancies. So there are very, very few VHL patients who would not really meet that criteria. Perhaps, you know, the two Cs who have just few chromocytomas, uh, may not qualify, but most of these patients have one of these three cancers, uh, clear cell renal cancers or hemangioblastomas or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors and would qualify for this medication. So, But then it's not that 
all of these patients need these medication need this medication and and um, we recently uh, wrote this paper and which has been accepted in neuro oncology so it uh, you know um, it's a bit of a self promotion over here but uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, you know so we've uh, um, gone over the details of the disease and and this medication and and certain clinical you know practical considerations in terms of the patient selection uh, monitoring and uh, you know the adverse effect profile etc um, and, and because this drug was just recently approved, um, you know, the real world experience is relatively, it's relatively new. Um, so, but this particular medication, um, going back to the biology, uh, when your VHL is affected, um, so VHL, it's, um, it's, it's a tumor suppressor protein, which is a part of a complex um, that, that functions as something called a ubiquitin ligase, and it regulates um, these proteins called hypoxia-inducible factors. Um, there are two major isoforms, the hypoxia-inducible factor 2 and 1, um, and the HIF2 has been shown to be the dominant pro-oncogenic isoform. And um, uh, belzudafan is a small molecule inhibitor of uh, HIF2 alpha. Um, I won't go into the depths of the biology, how it you know, essentially, it, it causes a um, it, it breaks a dimerization of HIF2 alpha with its partner, and and what these hypoxia-inducible factor proteins do is they it, they enhance the transcription of genes involved in angiogenesis and rewiring of metabolism, so it ties into the hypoxia pathway. Um, so essentially, these cells which are affected by this VHL disease think that they are under a hypoxic stress. And it's something that we call a pseudo-hypoxic phenomenon. And they upregulate genes that help these cells adapt uh, to a low hypoxia, a, a low oxygen environment, even if your oxygen environment is normal. Um, and, and this chronic pseudo-hypoxic state uh, resulting in the upregulation of angiogenesis and rewiring of metabolism results in these hypervascular tumors that are characteristic of the VHL disease. And, and so uh, really with, with Belzutifan, we are going at the truncal aspect of the pathogenesis, um, which is you know, what has resulted in these impressive response rates. Oh, that, that's a fantastic uh, explanation, and it, it, makes, uh, it makes sense. I'm going to throw something out as a as a non-expert. Um, would there be any role for taking low dose belzutifan as a prophylaxis on, say, a regular basis to sort of prevent these uh, tumors from growing? Has anyone so, looked into that? Yeah. So at this point in time, we don't have any data to support that being of benefit. And I think, um, uh, you know, as Dr. Shinoy had mentioned, it's being sorted out now in real time as we, we all collectively gain experience with this drug and that, you know, trying to figure out who the optimal patients are for treatment. And I think in general, the consensus thus far is those who have uh, multiply progressive uh, tumors that are symptomatic. That's kind of your ideal patient for it. But there is some variability and there's a number of different factors that need to be weighed. Um, we don't know whether, you know, what the optimal duration of therapy is. We don't know in some ways what the optimal dosing schedule, do you take breaks or not? Um, and at this point, again, there is no definitive evidence that if you're nice and stable and nothing's going on, that you would benefit from a low chronic dose of the drug. But you're thinking about it. 
these are these are all important questions that we're weighing and, and trying to sort out. It, and I think from a practical perspective, it's stuff that's not really easy to model in uh, preclinical uh, settings in animals. Um, you know, uh, you know what what happens. 10 years down the line or 30 years down the line. You can't replicate mm. in a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. There are limitations. Right. That's yeah. fair. Dr. Lucas, any final recommendations for providers managing patients with uh, VHL? I would say that, you know, one, have a suspicion for it when you come across the patient who has the hemangioblastoma or the patient who you're seeing with the stroke and gets pan scanned and has a bunch of cysts in the pancreas or, you know, has a little lesion in, in the liver. So it's something to, to be suspicious of. Um, and then I think, you know, understand that there is value in making sure that there's a comprehensive evaluation um, so things don't slip through the cracks. And I guess the, the last bit is that there is a lot of hope on the horizon with the advent of a new uh, regulatory approval for a systemic therapy. So this is kind of the exciting thing for us that we haven't seen. You know, we have to just cut away and burn away at these tumors for a long time, at least in the central nervous system. Um, and now we have something that can address multiple lesions um, all at once. And, you know, hopefully we'll continue to have advances in this field that will be driven by the preclinical science. Oh, that's terrific. Well, is there anything else any of you would like to add? Um, you know, I, I just say that uh, over the last three decades, the research in this field on this pathway, you know, would not have been possible yeah. had it not been for multiple groups. And the 2019 Nobel Prize in, uh, in Medicine and Physiology was awarded to, uh, you know, Dr. Scalin, Samenza, and Radcliffe uh, for work related to this pathway. Dr. Samenza had discovered the uh, hypoxia-inducible factor 1 protein, and uh, Dr. Kalen and Radcliffe's groups um, identified the regulatory mechanisms, you know, between VHL and the HIF. Uh, so very uh, well-deserved Nobel there, and and had it not been for their work and the, the scientists at UT Southwestern who identified um, that uh, the HIF-2 isoform could be targeted with small molecule inhibitors, um, it would have been, uh, you know, we would not have been here. So um, it's it's credit to these groups and, and years of focused research in this that we, that we are where we are. Um, and, and going back to when the gene was first isolated, it was 1993, and, and that happened at the NCI um, in collaboration with the University of Birmingham. Uh, so it's interesting. It's actually a, a century after the disease was first, you know, I guess, described as, as peculiar vascular growths in the retina um, is when the gene was cloned. Um, and since 1993, three decades of research, focused research has got us to where we are. So we are standing on the shoulders of uh, these giants in the field. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you. Dr. Simonak, Lucas, and Shinoy, thank you for this very informative discussion about von Hippolando disease and for joining me on Better Edge. Thank you. thank you. To refer your patient or for more information, head to our website at breakthroughsforphysicians.nm.org neuro to get connected with one of our providers. And that wraps up this episode of Better Edge, a Northwestern Medicine podcast for physicians. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>